Folks, we're here to study the Bible. It's great to see you this morning, and we're going to have a great year together studying a fabulous book of the Bible. I've had several things that have been teasing me toward Acts for a while, and uh, the idea of uh, a whole group of men being on mission, knowing what the mission is and doing it in the right way by the power that God provides for the ends that glorify Him is really exciting. And Acts is one of those books that reminds us what we're supposed to be about. Uh, Acts is the church under revival. Acts is what the church is supposed to look like. Uh, and we're going to have a great time looking at it and learning from it and pray for God to revive us in our own generation and in our individual lives and in our families and, and in our churches as well. Uh, those of you who are here for the first time, we especially welcome you. And let me just say that one thing that we really like about Amen Bible Study is that uh, less than half of you are from Second Presbyterian Church. I don't know how many churches are represented here, but all different kinds of churches, and some people who don't have a church anywhere. And uh, we especially welcome you. If this is kind of your place to look into uh, what the Bible's all about, who Jesus is, and whether there is a God, and if there is, what we're supposed to do about it, we're really glad you're here and hope that uh, you learn some things about that as you spend time with us. And uh, uh, just enjoy the cross-fertilization of guys from many different backgrounds and perspectives uh, sharing Thursday mornings together. Uh, we, we just love having you here. The reason we study the Bible is it's very interesting. Some of you may have seen uh, in USA Today this past week an article about George Barna's most recent book called Futurecast, in which uh, Barna shows that uh, what's happening to religion in America is that we're all just kind of making up our own designer religion. Uh, the basic idea from Barna is that with 310 million people in this country, we've got 310 million religions. Everybody's just kind of creating their own stuff. Some of you may remember the book Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella and some other sociologists. When Bella uh, interviewed a young gal whose name was Sheila, and he said to her, and this, this is 25 years ago, he interviewed her and said, so Sheila, what's your religion? And she said, my religion is Sheilaism. <laughs> and... Bella's point was, that's where we're headed. You know, my religion is Sandyism, you know? Just whatever, whatever I want, you know, whatever suits me, whatever feels like it meets my needs, that's my religion. And uh, Barna, in this recent book, Futurecast, goes on to say that uh, it's amazing that the overwhelming majority of people in this country claim to be Christians. And yet, he says, if you take what they actually believe, only 7%, get this, 07, 7%, of the people in the country have a faith that comes anywhere close to being orthodox Christianity. So people are just believing all kinds of things. Uh, most of them believe they're, they're in good shape, you know, as far as eternal life goes, but their faith is all over the place. Well, what's the solution? Well, the solution is if there is a truth, we need to be able to find it out. And what we want to do in Amen Bible study, you know, the word amen just means truly. So we want to find out truly uh, what is the truth. And the best way to do that is to go to the book, the book that God inspired, the Bible, and see what the gold standard is for truth there. So we're going to be studying that together. And you'll notice if you look at your schedule, uh, there are a few Thursday mornings that are really special when you're going to get some real good teaching. And those are the ones that I'm away on because <clears throat> look, look who I've got substituting for me, an all-star cast. So uh, we'll have some guest speakers from time to time as well. Well, folks, let's dig right in. Take your Bibles. And by the way, if you do not have an ESV study Bible, could I suggest that you get one? 
I think they, I think you can get them at the book barn down here for maybe 35 or something, 35. Is that about right? Somewhere in that range. Oh, we're selling them over here. How much are we selling them for? 25? Man, you can't afford not to buy those things. I mean, just think of it. Every time you buy one, you're saving $10. Go home and tell your wife that. She'll understand completely. Uh, matter of fact, you could buy those for 25 and sell them on the street for 35. You could, hey, forget your job today. We've got a way for you to make a ton of money. Just get Bibles for $25. Uh, if you can't afford that $25, ask your mother. Uh, and just tell her you want your Christmas present early. If your mother's not living, ask your wife. If you don't have one of those, you can ask me. And, of course, I'm going to get the money from the rich people in this room anyway. So you just go ahead any way you want to do it. We, but we want you to have an ESV study Bible, so please do get one today. Now, having said that, it's on page 2080, 2080, the book of Acts. And you'll notice where it's sitting in your New Testament. It's right behind the Gospels. There's a reason for that. The story of Acts picks up the Acts of the Apostles after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And we'll notice, of course, in our text for today, we're starting with this ascension. So the, the exaltation, the ascension of Christ up to the right hand of God is what divides the Gospels in the book of Acts. And Luke is the author of Acts. And the reason we know that is from the very first verse where he is writing to the same guy. I don't know who this guy Theophilus is. It's probably his golfing buddy or something. But he's writing. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. That means Theophilus probably took some money from him on the backside last time they played. But he's writing Theophilus in both Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. There are also many, many other reasons that we know it was written by Luke because Luke accompanied Paul. And there are several sections in Acts called the we sections where Luke no longer is writing in third, narrative, third person. He's talking now in first person. We went here and we went there. And Luke was a very close companion of the Apostle, companion of the Apostle Paul. You'll find that he was with Paul, for example, in both of his, his, his first and his second imprisonment. And Paul, at one point, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, he speaks of our dear friend Luke the doctor. Our dear friend Luke the doctor. And in his second imprisonment, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Luke only is with me. So Luke was a devoted friend of the Apostle Paul. He knew him intimately. And being a physician, I'm sure that Paul was especially glad to have Luke with him in his second imprisonment. Uh, Luke was obviously helping to take care of him. Luke was a, a physician, but he was also an exquisitely careful historian. You know, you doctors tend to be a little anal about things, and the rest of us who are patients are very glad about this. I mean, you watch things very carefully. You've got all your details. You don't let anything, you know, get by you. You just, it's all process. It's, it's all these medical details that drive most of the rest of us crazy. Well, Luke was just as uh, careful about his history, and uh, scholars today are amazed at the exquisite accuracy of Luke's geographical allusions to his historical allusions. So even secular historians realize that Luke's accounts are, are wonderfully accurate historical accounts. So Luke was very careful. And we'll see in this first verse that one thing Luke seeks to do is simply to set out an orderly account. He knows that these things need to be documented. But Luke has some other purposes in Acts as well. He clearly wants to show something about the meaning of the age in which we live, the age between the ascension 
and the return of Christ. That's the age in which we're living. And there's some real significance to it, and we'll see that in just a moment. We'll also see that Luke wants to make the case that Christianity is legitimate because Christianity, of course, was very small. It was threatened by the Roman authorities. It was under persecution on numerous occasions through several centuries. And Luke wants to make the point that it's legitimate and that it does no harm to the state. And he'll show over and over again in the Acts of the Apostle uh, how the faith, our faith in Jesus Christ actually leads us to do good and not to undermine the state. He's also very uh, clear to show of the power, the saving power of the Christian message. Now, I know that you've been listening to all kinds of messages. They're all out there, and we're glad that we have an opportunity to hear them. But Luke is saying there's a unique message in the gospel and that it has a unique effect upon human life. That is to change human life and then to preserve human life even for eternity. It's an amazing thing, he says, this gospel. And he wants to show that this gospel is for everybody. So Luke shows in the Acts of the Apostle that the message is to go out to the entire world because uniquely it has the power to transform human life and to preserve human life for eternity. Uniquely. There is no other message. Luke's really clear about this. So it has universal application, but uniquely accomplishes the mission uh, that God uh, has for men and women. So let's look at Acts chapter 1. We'll, today we'll just look at verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. By the way, uh, two things. One is you notice this year we also uh, have assigned a special text by John R.W. Stott. Some of you know Dr. Stott just died this year, not too long ago, just a few weeks ago. Uh, that is a great commentary in the book of Acts. I, there are several of them that I enjoy and that I'll be... Uh, consulting as we go through our studies uh, this year. But the one by Stott, I would say, is, is one of the clearest and one of the better ones you can get. And he does an excellent job of just taking all the elements of the text. If, if you happen to have read ahead, uh, you have noticed that already. Uh, 
I know that there are a number of pages being assigned. I know that all of you won't get through all those pages. But if you'd really like to do in-depth study of the book of Acts, I suggest you do the reading ahead of time. And obviously I'll make reference to Stott from time to time, but I won't be able to give you all the material he gives you uh, in that good commentary. So I hope you enjoy uh, that commentary. Secondly, I also want to mention, we've always encouraged you, if you've got time, if you can handle it in your weekly schedule, to join up with a small group. Some of you are already in a small group, that's fine. But if you don't have a small group where you can discuss some of these things, would you let us help you with that? Some of you, there are over 100 of you that were in small groups last year. You may want to continue the, those same small groups. Others of you may not have a clue about how to get involved in that. Don Riley, Don, raise your hand, wave at everybody. Don is right there. He's going to be there at the end of Amen, and uh, he'd be glad to help you get lined up with a small group. Here's the advantage of a small group. Here it's all you know, coming from me, and there's only, only so much any one person can do. And what's really important about this Bible study is not what I think, it's what you think. That's what's really important. And when you get into a small group, you get an opportunity to formulate what you think. And it's very important that you formulate it and that you share it with somebody else and see what they think about it. Because maybe what you think is off the wall. Well, the only way you're going to know that is if you go ahead and put it out on the table and let somebody respond to it. On the other hand, what you think could be extremely helpful to somebody else. And the only way you can minister to somebody else is if you're with them, sharing with them. So there are all kinds of good reasons to be in small groups. I notice some of you like to try to meet right after amen, and you, you get in some of these rooms down the hallway. That's fine. Some of you have to take off for work, and you'd need to be in a group at some other time. But please let Don know, and whatever we can do to help you with that, we'd be glad to do it. So look at that. $25 Bibles in a free small group all on one, one Thursday morning. Folks, let's begin to look at this text, and I'm going to break it up into three categories this morning that uh, I think will frame up the main thing we want to talk about. First of all, I want you to notice that our mission in life is His mission. Our mission is His mission. I cannot overemphasize the importance of this point. When I became a Christian uh, 35 years ago, I distinctly remember one of the great benefits of being converted was that I now for the first time in my 25-year-old life uh, knew what I was here for. I mean, for 25 years, especially the last 10 of those 25 years, uh, I had been faking it. Uh, it's almost as though you, know, you have to be an existentialist. You have, to, you have to impose meaning on life because as Jean-Paul Sartre said, life really has no meaning so if you're going to bring meaning, you've, you've got to impose meaning on life. And I lived like an existentialist for the first 25 years of my life, imposing meaning on life so that life had some substance to it. And life, there was a reason to get up in the morning. And what I find is that guys go on way beyond 25 years, and they, they can live half a century just kind of pretending that there's some purpose to their life. Otherwise, they would just be in total despair. And so existentialism, of course, eventually leads to despair, but it, it provides a, an interim solution, a little speed bump along the way to try to keep you out of despair, and that is you bring your own meaning to life. It doesn't work because eventually it, it comes to your mind, you know, this is not going to last forever. <laughs> you know, this is just going to be over. Then what was the meaning of my life? So when I became a Christian, and meaning, meaning for the first time was suffused through my soul 
And now mission, the reason for my being on the earth for the first time now came real clear to me. Now, being a pastor, a full-time Christian worker, was the furthest thing from my mind. I got shocked with that a little later. Uh, I, was a, uh, I was a steel salesman at the time. But selling steel was, was not going to give meaning to my life. Making money was gonna get, not going to give meaning to my life. Not even having family, which I already had by then, was going to bring meaning to life. There had to be something transcendent. And when I met Jesus Christ savingly, that's when I got mission in my life. What is so tragic is just this week we've looked at these unemployment figures, and they're, they're up around 10%. And when you get into the urban area, if you, if you took Memphis proper, you'd find an unemployment rate of over 30% of men between ages of 18 and 30 years of age. Now, what do men between the age of 18 and 30 do when they're unemployed? They do a bunch of bad things. Well, let me tell you something. The whole world is unemployed because they don't know what their mission is. And you say, what do people do when they're unemployed? They do a lot of bad things. That's exactly what we do. We, we, we've lost our sense of mission as human beings. One thing the gospel will do for you, it's like a major employment office. It just gets you back in to work. It gets you back into mission. It gets you back into doing what you're supposed to be doing. And right here in the very beginning, we see that our mission, praise God, we've got a mission. There's a reason for us to be here. It's a divinely given reason. Our mission is his mission. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the text. First verse, Luke says to Theophilus, I have dealt in my first book, Theophilus, with all that Jesus, now look at these words, began to do and teach. Now, first of all, notice what he says Jesus did. He taught and he did, or he did and he taught. And that's exactly what you find in the Gospels. The mission of Jesus is to do deeds of compassion, of mercy, and to teach or to proclaim the truth. Jesus prayed to his Father, Father, as you have sent me, so I send them. So we are sent in the world to do what? Same thing. It's the mission of Jesus, to do and to teach. So many people try to separate them. I don't like doing it. I don't like to get my hands dirty. I'll just teach the Bible. They won't get it. Because you, you have to demonstrate the gospel as well as proclaim it. Others will say, you know, I'm really good with my hands. This teaching stuff, man, I... I don't think I understand anything about the Bible. I can't talk about it. You know, I just don't like talking at all. I just like doing. I won't get it either. Because doing and demonstrating the gospel, is, it's not clear that it's the gospel unless you interpret why you're doing what you do. And the interpretation is the proclamation of the gospel. So you put the deed itself and its interpretation together. That's what Jesus did. That's what he sends us to do. But notice the most important word is the word began. Why is that important? Because here's what Luke is saying. The Gospels is just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The acts of the church is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. So when Jesus was here in the flesh, that's just the beginning of what he was doing. And now is the continuation of what he's doing. Now get this. What is the continuation of what he's doing? It's what you're doing. And what I'm doing, we are the continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable concept. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says, I fill up in my flesh that which is remaining in the work of Christ. He doesn't mean that he's laying his life down like Jesus did on the cross to pay for other people's sins. No, he's simply saying he's continuing 
the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, do you realize what a noble calling you have? It's to go out and do the work of Jesus Christ and communicate the message of Jesus Christ to the world to do the same work that he did? My stars. That's exactly what we've been called to. Now notice uh, the elements of this mission. First of all, we're trained for it. He trained us. Until the day he was taken up, after he had given, he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. And that just means that he taught us, and by the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to understand it. And speaking about the kingdom of God. That's in verse 3b. So what did he train us about? He trained us about a kingdom. That there's a dominion or a power or a reign that is taking over the world. That's the essence of what we were trained about under Jesus Christ. If you find, if you look at Jesus' teaching, you study it carefully, you'll find over and over again the number one concept he teaches on is the kingdom. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, you just get a whole chapter of parables about what? The kingdom. Jesus was teaching that he was the king who came to rule the kingdom, but that we were all being entered into a kingdom. And this kingdom is like leaven, eventually taking over the whole loaf. That's what's happening. And you remember Jesus said before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Because Pilate was asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the king, the Jewish king who is to come? Jesus said, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I'm not like one of your political enemies. I'm not like one of your military enemies. This is a divine kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. So that's what he taught us more than anything else. What does it mean then if there is a kingdom? Well, I want to be in it. Well, how do you get in it? Well, first of all, you have to understand you've rebelled against the king, so you'd be in trouble. So how are we going to solve that? Well, Jesus solved it. The king laid down his own life as a sacrifice to pay for your rebellion so that you could be accepted back into the kingdom in good terms. That's exactly what he did. And that's how we all came into the kingdom. Now what are we going to do? We're going to realize that our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven and that we're aliens and sojourners here. We're not going to grab for all the gusto that's here because this is not home. Home is in heaven. So we are sojourners through this life living out the idea of a kingdom, knowing that one day the kingdom will even physically completely take over the cosmos. That's what he taught us. It's a secret, a public secret, but nonetheless the secret to the Christian life. It's about the kingdom. So he trained us. And that's what motivates us. We have a job. We have a mission in the kingdom of God. Secondly, B, you'll notice he chose us. He, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit, verse 2, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now you can look in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus first chose these apostles. And Luke tells us he was praying all night before he chose them. And what did he tell us? It tells us that he called to himself those he wanted and he appointed them apostles. He called to himself those he wanted. That's the way he did with the apostles. Now, the fact of the matter is, he did the same thing with us. And Paul teaches this in Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that we are the chosen. In fact, one of the words for God's people is just simply the chosen. 
Some people misunderstand and think, well, you must be talking about the Jewish race. Well, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the church. In the New Testament, the church is an international entity. The Jews, uh, as it were, in Romans 11, they're the stump. You know, the remnant of the Jew believing Jews was the foundation for the church. But then we wild Gentiles have been grafted into it so that now we're the new Israel and we are the chosen of the Lord. So when you're put on this mission, when you're put in this work, you are put there because God wanted you to be. He said to his own disciples in John 15, 16, I have chosen you to go and bear fruit. So Jesus intends to bear much fruit in this world, but he's chosen the means and the men by which it will be done, and it's you. If you're in Christ, you're only there because he wanted you personally. And that's exactly what he's, he's reminding the disciples of, of here. Let's look thirdly in verse 3a. He also convinced us. How did he convince us? Well, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. We are told over and over again in the book of Acts, and Acts is basically a book of speeches. If you like speeches, you're going to love Acts. Because what Luke is also showing is, here's how you proclaim the gospel. And he'll give us many apostolic messages that give us a framework for how we too can go through our world and, can, and explain the gospel. But you'll notice a number of times in these speeches, the speaker makes a point that Jesus was not only resurrected, but he was seen. So this is not some Hindu myth that we all know is really like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. It's not really true, but just trying to kind of provide some sort of mythological framework for an ethical lifestyle. That's not what the Christian message is. The Christian message is these things actually happened. They're historical realities that our faith is not based on myth or just high-mindedness. It's based on earthiness real things that happen in flesh and blood and on the very ground of this earth. Things that you, if you'd been there, would have seen with your own eyes and you would have been able to go home to your wife and say, honey, you can't believe what I saw today. Because people actually saw it. And the point that's made throughout the scriptures, like with John in the first epistle of John, the things that we saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears, and we handled with our hands. In other words, the physical senses are engaged in this Christian religion because it's based on historical reality. And Jesus says to them here that uh, he presented himself, or Luke says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He presented himself. There are at least 10 occasions during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension when he presented himself, sometimes to very large crowds, like at the end of Matthew's gospel, with 500 people. You know, in those days, if anybody doubted the resurrection, you could go to the Jerusalem Gazette and find out what witnesses they interviewed. You'd find 500 people throughout the nation of Israel who saw him with their own eyes. It's undeniable. And this is the reason, brothers, that I believe this, because of the witnesses and the credibility of the witnesses. Now, if you think about these apostles, these particular 11 here, and later in this chapter, Matthias is added. Later on, Paul is added as another eyewitness who saw him after his ascension, actually. But if you take these 13 men who went throughout the world proclaiming what they themselves had seen, these are not men of ill repute. 
These are not men of inferior character. These are men of the highest integrity. And they go out and all of them, independent of one another, suffer for this message. Facing kings and governors and, uh, and facing imprisonment and whippings, independent of one another. And they stand by their message. Now, they may be wrong, but I'll guarantee you this. They all thought they were right. You don't go to your slow death under persecution thinking you're wrong. These men all thought they were right. And unless you think for some reason that's where there's no evidence to it that they're delusional independently of one another, and it just happened, great coincidence, all 13 of them are delusional in the same way, believing the same message. That's harder for me to believe than a resurrection. So here we have some eyewitnesses, men of credibility, men of integrity, men of character, who obviously had the power of the Spirit in their lives, and they were convinced with their own eyes. They saw the reality of the resurrection. So our mission is His mission because He's trained us for it, He chose us for it, and He's convinced us of it. And if you go into his mission, you need all these things. You you need to know that you're chosen by him. You need to be trained by him. And you need to be convinced of him. Because you too will face persecutions. We'll learn that later. Secondly, let's look at verses 4 through 8. Our power is his power. Our power is his power. Gentlemen, Um, first thing I want us to notice in verse 4 and 5 is that his power is necessary. Jesus says to them, boys, I don't want you going out of Jerusalem trying to do ministry or trying to be on my mission unless you've got something that I've got to give to you or rather I and the Father will give it to you. And I've told you about it before, but I'm going to remind you. The Father has promised you an enormous gift of infinite value. Until you get that gift, don't even take the first step in the mission because you get clobbered and you can't do it. You cannot do this mission on your own native power. Do do we hear this? This mission is so great, so noble. It's impossible. It is mission impossible. You cannot do it by your own power. It doesn't matter how clever you are. It doesn't matter how bold you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how winsome or diplomatic you are. You can't do this by your own power. Here's here's one reason. You remember when Ezekiel went out to preach? Where did God tell him to go preach? A graveyard. And Ezekiel says, preaching's hard enough. But I mean, come on, give me somebody who can respond. And what Ezekiel was having to realize is when you preach to anybody or when you do anything seeking to demonstrate Christ, it is as though you're dealing with a graveyard. Because that's the condition in which people are living. They're dead. They're spiritually, morally dead. This is impossible. You can't can't transform the world, transform hearts or souls, unless God is in it. So what happens? Ezekiel says, okay, Lord, whatever you say. (laughs) How idiotic would you feel? If you go out to the cemetery out here this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, I have a few words to share with you about Jesus Christ. I mean, somebody's going to come by in a paddy wagon, pick you up, put you in a white jacket, and haul you off. It's ridiculous. And Ezekiel felt like a total idiot. But that's exactly what he does. 
In fact, he says, I went to where the bones were dry, very dry. And he goes out in the valley of dry bones and he starts preaching. <laughs> well, you laugh. But let me tell you, the ankle bone connected to the shin bone, the shin bone connected to the knee bone. The bones start to rattle. Ezekiel is amazed. Now, I, I guarantee you, Ezekiel didn't say, man, I'm an incredible preacher. <laughs> Look at the power of my preaching. Look at these bones. Man, they're rattling. Now, he was absolutely astonished. And gentlemen, when you flub around and you, know, you do the best you can do and you know it's not very good and you try to say something about Jesus or about God and you know it's not very smart, it's not very clever, you know, oh, gosh, what? Don't worry about it. If you'd done such a great job, you would have thought that the good results that come from it is because you were so smart, clever, and good-looking. Just You just do it in the name of Jesus. It's amazing the power that he accompanies your ministry with. And he's saying to you, don't go out there because you've been well-trained. Don't think that three years of seminary is going to get you ready to be involved in the ministry of Jesus. No, sir, Bob. What you need is an alien power. Now, this is just as clear as the atonement. You cannot make up for your sins. We know this in the atonement of Jesus Christ. This is the reason we needed his death on the cross. Because no matter how good I try to be, no matter how many people I lead to Jesus, no matter how much of my money I give away, I can't make up for a deficit that's 400,000 miles deep. I can't dig out of it. It's impossible. I need what we call an alien righteousness. I need the righteousness of Jesus imputed to me through simple faith in him. And that's what I get. When I believe in Jesus, I get the fullness of his righteousness. And that's the reason I'm going to heaven, because I've got his record, not mine. Now, that's a gift. And I know it sounds like Disney World to, to some of you if you don't believe. But, I mean, I know and I, I feel sorry for you. It's just hard to believe this stuff. But that's what the Bible teaches. And by the power of the Spirit, I've been led to believe it. It's true. And I, he actually offers this to anyone who simply says, Jesus Forgive me my sin. I want your righteousness for my righteousness. I want to follow you. And he does it. Now, you see, you need alien righteousness. Now, look at this. You also need alien power so that we're completely dependent in every way all the time. We're dependent for our righteousness and we're dependent for our power. And we spend most of our time trying to, as men, trying to accumulate power. The male ego naturally accumulates power. That's what money is about. That's what fancy cars are about. That's what trying to lose weight is about. <laughs> You're not doing it because of a doctor. <laughs> we want to look good, man. It's power. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you can't do this with that kind of power. You can spend your billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. And in fact, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you can spend a trillion dollars on military power. It won't accomplish what I'm doing. It won't accomplish what I'm doing. What I'm doing takes the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says his power is necessary. He says, wait, boys, until you get it. Now, secondly, notice that this same power in verses 6 through 8 is purposeful. Purposeful. He's not giving us this power to go out and exploit people. He's not giving us this power so we can go out and be richer than the guy next to us. And that's how the Christian message is often conveyed. You know what? You may be happy, but you sure can be a lot happier with Jesus because he'll make you wealthy. And I, he, he'll heal people. 
He can put that marriage back together. If you just give your life to Jesus, you can have this, you can have that, you can have this. And a lot of people, they, they want to become Christians because they're saying, hey, I like your shopping cart a whole lot better than my shopping cart. It's called the cargo cult. And a lot of people come into the Christian faith as members of the cargo cult, and pretty soon what happens, you get disappointed. Because what we're going to see is these guys didn't end up very wealthy. I hate to tell you that right now. In fact, they all ended up poor. And all of them but John ended up being killed for their faith. They were all martyred. So, uh, fair warning. There is joy, and we'll get to that in a moment. But this power is for a unique purpose. And let's look and see what that purpose is. The, the purpose, first of all, is not for worldly conquest. Look at verses 6 and 7. The disciples thought, oh, so we're going to get some power. Well, it's about time. So, Lord, when are we going to use this power to get rid of these crappy Romans and get their, their boots off our necks and get this land cleansed of these Gentiles? When are you going to restore Israel to its former greatness? Now, you may remember, if you know your history books, about 200 years before this, 167 B.C., the Greeks came in. The abomination of de de desolation was set up in the temple. Pigs were offered in the... Can you believe this? Pigs were offered in the temple. A total scandal to Jewish religion. Well, the Maccabees, the family of the Maccabees, riled up the Israelis, and they drove the Greeks out of there, and Israel was free for about 50 years until the Romans came. And now they're under the Romans again. And look what the disciples are asking. Okay, now, Lord. Now, look, they've been taught by him for three years about the kingdom. They've been listening to him since his resurrection about the kingdom. And here's the best they can come up with. So, Lord, when are you going to restore Israel? <laughs> Nutty. These guys still don't get it. John Calvin says, this is recorded in Stott's commentary. Calvin says, there are as many mistakes in this question as there are words. <laughs> it's just a completely wrong question. They're thinking militarily. They're thinking politically. Let's take over this place. Now look at Jesus' answer. Once again, it's so gracious. Uh, he says to them, um, it is not for you to know, verse 7, times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. He doesn't say to them, you're a bunch of idiots, which is what I would have said. He says, guys, this is not for you to know now about times and seasons that are set by my, my Father. But then he goes on to show them what the purpose of this power is. It is not for worldly conquest, but it is for worldwide witnessing. That's what the power is for. It's to testify to the greatness of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, here and around the world. And Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now you say, is this just for the apostles or is this for us too? No, it's for us too. You say, well, how can I be a witness? A witness is a person who sees something and hears something and I wasn't there. I mean, Peter saw it and heard it and he talks about it later on in Acts. Uh, Paul later had saw Jesus uh, in his Damascus Road vision and he could talk about that. But what am I witness of? Well, do you remember in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, there's a 
man who is filled with thousands of demons called the Gadarene demoniac. He's from Gadara. That's the reason we call him Gadarene demoniac. And he comes screaming at the top of his voice, naked, with chains hanging off his arms and his legs, uh, screaming at Jesus, and Jesus casts out the demons. You remember that story? And they go into the pigs, and the pigs into the bottom of the lake. And then, you remember the, the former demoniac, we're told, is clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, if that's not a picture of salvation, I've never seen one. Here's a man who had total freedom to do whatever he wanted to. Didn't have to wear clothes, follow social conventions. He could beat up other people when he got tired of beating them up, beat himself up, slash himself, scream, break every rule of social convention he wanted to. Do whatever he wants. He's totally free. There's the picture of the modern free man, demon-possessed. And now he's, he's, he's free as far as the demons are concerned, but then he gets to meet Jesus, and then what happens? Now he's constrained. He's wearing clothes. He's in his right mind. He's now truly free because he's in bonds to Jesus Christ. Take your choice. There are only two. Uh, I'd prefer the latter. But then do you remember what Jesus told this demoniac to do? He said to him, that very day, he says, go preach. That's the word he uses. Go proclaim. So he makes, <laughs> this guy just got converted 10 minutes ago, and Jesus is already ordaining him to go preach. And he, what does he go preach? He says to him, tells him what to preach. Tell your family, he says. Go to those that are closest to you and tell them the mercy that God has had upon you. That's what you're a witness of. You're a witness of what you've heard from others, including these witnesses, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation. But you are also a witness of the mercy that Jesus Christ has had upon you. You're an expert in that. You don't need to go to Bible college. You don't need an evangelism explosion training center. You don't need anything to tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. Now, as you mature in your faith, the way you explain that will be more nuanced and sophisticated and more helpful to other people. But from the moment you get to know him savingly, you have a story to tell, and you're a witness. And Jesus says, when you receive the Spirit, you will become then my witnesses. Now, notice uh, the word witness in Greek is simply the word um, martyrion, which means martyr. The word martyr is the word witness. I've already mentioned that um, uh, that these apostles were all slain for their faith, except for John, who was exiled on the island of Patmos because of his faith, but the rest of them were put to death. At least tradition tells us that. Um, and you know, there's a sense in which Anybody who follows Jesus, there's a certain part of you that dies. Uh, your claim to fame, your desire to be seen as uh, cool and sexy by the world, it just goes by the way. You die to that. It gets crucified in Christ so that you become a martyr in that sense. And if we lived in a culture, uh, which many Christians do this day, where Christians were persecuted, you would lay down your life simply in order to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And every single follower of Christ is called upon to do that. Do you see how important this mission is? It is so important. It demands your very life. A friend of mine sent me a, an article about a recent book by Glenn Easterbrook entitled The Progress Paradox. 
And uh, Mr. Easterbrook in this book shows how if you take the um, metrics of what a prosperous life is and you look at those metrics in our own day, which would include income, mobility, medical care, uh, etc. Easterbrook makes the assertion and seems to prove it very solidly that Americans, the average American, is in the top 1% of prosperous people who ever lived on the face of the earth. If you just take the metrics of the prosperous life, in other words, we're all, the average person is living like royalty. Let me add this. Uh, we, we notice that our poverty rate has gone up to 15.1%, especially in the South. It's been rising these past few years. Now that means something around $23,000. If you if you have a family of four and you have less than $23,000 of income, you're below the poverty line. Well, let me tell you about $23,000. If you make $23,000, that puts you in the top 10% of income makers in the world. So our poverty line, if you get above poverty line, you're above you're in the top 10% in the world. Now we often forget this, but here's what Easterbrook goes on to say. They were one of the saddest cultures who've ever lived. In the past several years, uh, we have seen a tenfold increase in the number of unipolar depression cases. We're falling apart. The reason is, he cites a book by Martin Seligman, who was the former president of the American Psychological Association. And Dr. Seligman says that what happens when you have a culture that is intensely individualistic and consumeristic, it is increasingly lonely. And he says, our relationships are falling apart. As we design our own religion, design our own lifestyle, design our own missions, everything's designer. Everything's personally designed for moi, because after all, moi is the most important thing on the face of the earth. And we've cut ourselves off from everything else. It's really amazing, gentlemen, when you look at these lives of these men who gave up everything for the mission. They're the happiest people on the face of the earth. You go through the book of Acts, you'll see nothing but joy over and over again, even when they're persecuted. Joy, joy, joy. And this is where it is. When I became a Christian 35 years ago, I found the mission for my life. And I found that it was the most joyful thing I'd ever had in my entire life of 25 years. And where is it that we go? Well, look, look at verse 8. First of all, we go here in Jerusalem. Things must begin at home. We care about our own people, our own families. Uh, and the ministry begins with those that we love the most. Secondly, those close by, all Judea and Samaria, Memphis, Shelby County, state of Tennessee, the nation. And you know that Judea would be... Uh, the surrounding region made up largely of Jewish folks, so people with a common religious and cultural background. You go into Samaria, and now you're into the hated Samaritans, another race, mixed breed, another religion, very competitive. It would be like the, the Christians and the Muslims. And they were opposed to each other. They were enemies. And Jesus says right from the beginning, here's where your witness is supposed to go, Jerusalem, your own location, your own church, your own family, is to go to Judea, your own neighborhood, all your business associates, your network of friends, your Facebook, all that, 
and then go into Samaria, the people that you don't naturally deal with, and be sure you're witnessing there as well. Well, and then he says, and look, everywhere, even to the end of the earth. My stars, look at this mission we've got. Do you see how ennobling this is? Do you see how demanding it is? Do you see why we need an alien power? Every square inch of the world is yours. It's being given to you to share the good news in. We're doing the ministry of Jesus everywhere, all 196 nations, or more specifically, all 16,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. They're all ours. And then you say, well, I can't do this. I'm just one man. Well, by the power of the Spirit, here's what we can do. We can do just what the apostles did. They didn't go everywhere. Even Paul went largely among the nations around the Mediterranean. Thomas went to India. Others went down to Egypt. So they, they spread out. They only, so that hands-on, they had a particular location. But then they would also come, as we'll see in Acts 15, to the council in Jerusalem where they're all concerned about the entire world. And they all contribute to the entire world. They have their hands-on ministry in their own Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But then they concern themselves with the entire world. That's exactly what we've been given to do. Now, lastly, look in verses 9 through 11. We see not only is our mission his mission and our power his power, but our future is his future. Gentlemen, anytime you get engaged in anything, whether it's going to law school or starting a medical practice or starting a new business, one of the things you've got to ask yourself is what are the prospects? I mean, don't you go through there? Did Preston you do that when you went to law school? Well, I likely get a job when I get out of this place. I mean, if you go to WNL, maybe you get a job. But you think, what are the prospects? And gentlemen, you ought to ask the same thing about this. What are the prospects for someone who engages himself in this ministry? Now, you'd engage in this ministry as a banker and a lawyer and a doctor and a teacher and a laborer. So I'm not talking about your occupation. We do it through all of our occupations. But our mission is the same. What are the prospects? Now, look at the prospects. The prospect is that our future is his future. He was the first great witness, the first great martyr. He laid down his life. What, how did it turn out for him? Well, first of all, you notice he happens to be alive. So nobody can put you down permanently. That's one of the prospects of this mission. You cannot be killed. They can take this body, but they can't take your soul, and your body's coming back. Resurrection. And notice, first of all, he did depart, and they were eyewitnesses of it. Once again, they saw him in his resurrection body, but they saw him ascend as well. There were witnesses to that. They saw him go up. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. Uh, you'll notice, secondly, that when he departed, he ascended. He didn't go down. He didn't go out. He went up. What does that mean? It means that he was exalted to the right hand of God. And from that exalted position, we'll see in chapter 2, he and the Father sent the Spirit from above. The third person of the Trinity was commissioned by the Father and the Son. So Jesus Christ goes to his place of exaltation so that he can gain renewed access for us to the Father. He sends the Spirit from on high so that we were empowered to do his ministry. And as he promised the disciples in the upper room, I will be leaving you, but I'm sending you a comforter. And that spirit lives within us, not just beside us as Jesus did in the flesh, but he's actually inside of us. So the comfort we have now is greater than the comfort that Peter and James and John had in their own day. 
So we see Jesus going up. Now let me tell you something. What's going to happen to you? Same thing. Why? Well, because verses 10 and 11, he will return. The angel said, why are you looking up into heaven? Why are you stargazing? Why are you just sitting there thinking, I'm just going to sit here and just wait and see what happens next? No, go out into the world and be witnesses because eventually he will come back in the same way you saw him go, but he will come back visibly, personally, gloriously. That's your prospect, is that just in the same way that he went up, he will come down and he will gather his people. He will resurrect your body out of the grave, reunite your body and your soul. You will be in the same state that Jesus is in. So if we as witnesses must die the same death that he died on Calvary, brothers, listen to me now, we are going to live the same resurrected life that he lived. So we don't pay the same price without getting the same reward. Don't tell me that we're in this with no, th- no benefits for ourselves. Don't tell me that we're altruistically just believing in Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Gentlemen, I do believe because of those things, but I also believe this is the best deal on the face of the earth. Amen. All right? So we're not coming out of the short end of this deal. When you take this on as your mission, the prospect is glory. That's what it is. Not in this life. In this life, you're a glory incognito. Incognito. But there's coming a day when he comes back with millions upon millions of attendants. And he, they come with him to search you out and to serve you for all eternity. Angels are your servants. And so when they saw Jesus go up in the ascension and he was promised to come back and he had already said to them, in John chapter 4, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now you just imagine someone with Jesus' power, someone with Jesus' love, someone with Jesus' compassion. They spend all of 2,000 years doing the best they can to prepare a place for you. What kind of place is that going to be? I can't wait to see it. And that's what's at the end of the road for every one of us who simply say, Jesus, I believe you. I receive your work on the cross for me. I receive the power of your spirit because I want to be engaged in your mission. Gentlemen, we've all been put back to work. Let us pray.